a reminder, we're looking at the life of Daniel, and Daniel has been one uh, who has been through a great change in his life as a young man, he and his friends. This great change came at the time of him being probably around 15 or 16 years of age. The nation that he had lived under for so long was uh, trampled in a sense and completely taken over by Babylon in about 605 B.C. Many in the nation were exiled to Babylon, and Daniel was one of those, along with his friends, probably actually taken from their families. They were moved. And in that moving, they were brought into a completely different culture, different life. They were brought into a place that they were going to serve in, uh, the, in Nebuchadnezzar's court, so to speak. And they were uh, favored by God in this. They were looked at in all of their learning. They had uh, grown in their learning of Nebuchadnezzar's culture and Babylon's culture and, and their own worldview and all the context of it. They had learned and understood it, and yet Daniel and his friends had not been overcome by it. They were ones who were willing to stand for the things of God in the midst of all the difficulty and trial. After some time of being there, just a few years, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, a dream that disturbs him and keeps him awake. It's a dream that he can't interpret and doesn't know exactly what it means, but he seems to have an idea that uh, some difficulty is involved with it. And he begins to demand, literally demand, of the sorcerers, the conjurers, the magicians, and the Chaldeans, uh, these were the, the Babylonian religious leaders of that time. He begins to demand of them that they not only interpret the dream, but they tell him what his dream was first, then interpret it. Well, no one's really able to do that. And the king says, well, you know what? I'm not going to give you a whole lot of time here. You're just trying to bribe me for time, and so I'll just kill you all. And he makes the command for it to be done. And Arioch is sent out. Not only to kill all these others, but to kill Daniel and his friends as well. And when he, Arioch arrives to see Daniel, Daniel says, wait a second, what's all this about? He asks for time. He takes this time to ask he, uh, his friends for the four of them to go and to pray and to request compassion of God that this mystery would be revealed to them. And once the mystery is revealed, they praise God. They praise Him. Once there's been light shown, they praise Him. Upon the knowledge of this, Daniel is able to interpret the dream to the king. In verse 31, it says, here's Daniel's interpretation. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of an extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance 
was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But that stone, or but the stone that struck the statue, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel says, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. We see God, through a pagan king, revealed his plan to bring the perfect king. Through Daniel's words unfurled, he revealed his plan for the whole wide world. When you see this dream and you see its interpretation, you must not take all of your time to parse out every single little minute detail or you will miss the message of the dream and its interpretation. Especially in the last 150 to 75 years in modern church history, much of this dream has been parsed out to where there is... Literally, there are just pages written about the feet and the ten toes. I would say to you, if you spend a lot of time thinking and working out all of the issues of the ten toes, 
you will miss the great picture of the whole of the dream itself. That doesn't mean there's not some information that's important for us. It doesn't mean there's not some things to think about, even historically. But it does mean we need to be wise to think through the way prophecy is given and the purpose of prophecy. Here in Daniel's interpretation of the dream, we find that the dream and its interpretation gives enough information to to validate the historicity of the very prophecy itself and the future context of that historicity, while not at the same time trying to give us every single little detail that happened in every nation or empire that was spoken of here. There are people who have tried to read history of the Persian Empire or the Roman Empire, and then they try to parse out every little historical piece that they can find and somehow meld it into Daniel's interpretation of this dream. And they spend so much time doing that, they actually miss the great understanding of the dream itself. And yet at the same time, we have to note, there is history from our perspective that's spoken of here, and in Daniel's perspective, it's prophecy that's given, plainly and in a sense very boldly. Can you imagine at the age of probably now Daniel, 17 or 18 years of age, standing before Nebuchadnezzar, basically telling him, you're going to reign for a while, but your kingdom's going to come to an end. You're the head of gold. The whole statue is described here in verse 35 as being crushed. A crushing like that of the summer threshing floor. Now, if you don't know what that means in per se, you can just, I don't know, maybe you heard this. I heard this growing up all the time. I I don't remember, I had a grandmother, I think used to say this. She would say, well, that thing was just smashed to smithereens. Now, I don't know what smithereens are, um, but whatever they are, it apparently got smashed pretty good, right? And so that's the picture here. The, the summer threshing floor of the chaff, everything being ground down to a place where the wind can blow through it and just, it just blows into the air. Like baby powder just blown into the air and it's gone. Daniel's having to interpret this dream, first and foremost, number one, about a present kingdom. God revealed prophecy regarding a present kingdom. God revealed prophecy regarding a present kingdom. The first portion of the interpretation is relegated to Babylon. That is the first kingdom spoken of here, approximately 620 to 640 B.C. Somewhere in there is about how long it lasts. Daniel's brought into the life of Babylon in 605 B.C. or so, and he will live uh, through the time of Babylon, even to the time right at the very beginning of Cyrus the Great. We have to see that God is very particular in telling 
the king himself that yes, you will have a king or you will have a kingdom. But notice what he says in verse 37 as Daniel interprets this. You, O king, are the king of kings. Now, he, he's not praising the king as though he were God himself. He's standing before the king and giving him his proper due in the context of what any person would have done if they had to approach the king. But he's not praising him as though he's higher than God. But he's saying, on this earth, you're the king of kings in this kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon had spread far and wide and would continue to spread far and wide. But he notes something particular to the king in verse 37. He says, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Daniel says, here's prophecy regarding a present kingdom, but I want you to note something about your present kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. God gave you this power. God gave you this authority. God gave you this kingdom. You see here Daniel standing before uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's not only willing to tell Nebuchadnezzar the truth, but he does so in discernment and discretion, just as he probably did with Arioch, right? Thoughtfully, he speaks these things, but he speaks the truth. And he doesn't let Nebuchadnezzar get away from hearing the truth that he does have power. He does have strength. He does have glory as king of Babylon. And yet, he doesn't have any more or any less than what God had given him. God granted it to him. He says, your kingdom's far and wide in verse 38. And then he notes again, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. He says, now Nebuchadnezzar, notice this. You're far and wide in your kingdom, in your authority, in your rule and reign, but it's God who has given them over into your hand. But then in verse 39, something very important is said. And I'm not sure that all of your versions will state it quite uh, in, in the most distinct and proper way. Some of your versions will, will leave this idea out. But the phrase here is an Aramaic, Aramaic phrase, but after you or after you, there will arise another kingdom. Now, you've got to imagine if the king is thinking rightly here, he hears these words, he has to give some thought to the fact that you're not going to live forever. Now remember the magicians and the Chaldeans and the sorcerers earlier when they were approached with the problem, what did they say to Nebuchadnezzar? You, O king, will live forever. They were trying to get in his good graces so he didn't take off their heads. But Daniel says, no, the dream is saying to you, after you, there will arise another kingdom. So here's a prominent kingdom, the head of gold. It's the kingdom of Babylon. It is a very powerful kingdom. You, Nebuchadnezzar, have a lot of strength and power and your reign is far as the birds can fly, so to speak. It's very vast and it's very wide. And yet, just as has been told in the prophecy, the head of gold will be smashed into smithereens just like the rest of the statue. 
So after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over them all. Now, notice this is a brief statement in verse 39. In the interpretation of the dream, God doesn't give Daniel a lot of explicit detail about these kingdoms, but history has proven, quite frankly, there were two kingdoms that came after Babylon. One was great for a little while, and then another one was greater, and it ruled for a long time until the fourth kingdom. Well, the second kingdom is... Persia or Medo-Persia. It's the Persians and the Medes. You have to note that in the history of the Babylonian Empire, there had been a lot of time where the Medes and the Persians had gone back and forth. The Assyrians were the early uh, formations of the Babylonian Empire, and they were always kind of going back and forth with one another. And finally, finally, the Persians take over. But their takeover is not a takeover that is greater than the Babylonian Empire in itself because the Babylonian Empire had an ancient portion of its history. And it's noted here that the third empire is going to be greater than the second. The Medo-Persian Empire lasts from about 540 to 335 B.C., In 335 B.C., Alexander the Great from Greece comes in and takes over the Persian Empire. Now, that happens over a period of years, and there's a lot of conquering and war and bloodshed and a lot of stuff that happens in the midst of all that, but eventually it does happen. And this Medo-Persian Empire will end. Well, this... Brings us to our second point. God not only revealed a prophecy regarding a present kingdom, but God revealed prophecy regarding near future kingdoms. Near future kingdoms. God revealed prophecy regarding near future kingdoms. This is the Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire. Greece becomes a great mover and shaker. As we've talked about Alexander the Great, It gives us a context to see that this is the third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. If you go and you read on Alexander the Great and you find all the conquering that he did in a short amount of time, I think he died in his early 30s. He didn't have a very long life, but from the time uh, of a young man till the time that he died, uh, he conquered a lot of vast lands and nations. His not only rule and reign, but his military prowess is still studied today. That's how vast his knowledge was and usefulness in the military world. You have three kingdoms so far. One is the Babylonian kingdom. The second is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And the third is the, the kingdom of Greece. And these are these two near-future kingdoms to Nebuchadnezzar. But there's 
another kingdom, a fourth kingdom. Brings us to number three, God revealed a prophecy regarding a far future kingdom. A far future kingdom. Now with this far future kingdom, there's a little more said about it, but it's not as though there's just all of this ink spilt on great huge pieces of information. But it's Rome. This far future kingdom is Rome. It's a kingdom that had been burgeoning for some time. Probably in the early 700s, there's these two brothers supposedly that fought it out over the land in Italy. And somehow in the midst of all that, a people and nations were formed. And Italy begins to grow and you have... Uh, the place of Rome itself, and then Rome begins to expand over uh, Western uh, Europe and, uh, or excuse me, uh, parts of Asia and Europe. And the context of that spread is something that you need to understand. It moves in an outward way over time. This kingdom is so powerful even by the men and people and nations of the day. It was called the Roman Iron Hill. They were the ones who would come in and take their hill, their iron hill, and crush you into submission if you would not, if you would not submit. Well, here the Bible describes them. The fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. This fourth kingdom will pick up after the time of Greece and actually have a lot of influence on Greece And Julius Caesar will eventually take Greece over. And then Caesar Augustus will rule and reign. Rule and reign beginning in 31 B.C. like no other ruler has ruled before. If you've never read about Octavius and the rule and reign, he becomes Caesar Augustus because he names himself that. This is the power that is strong as iron and subdues all other nations. Now I want to stop and give you just a note here for a minute. You'll read people who don't like the, the interpretation of Daniel because the metals that are used now are not metals that we would consider to be that strong. And steel wasn't there and carbon fiber and blah, 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 blah. Once again, you're missing the point. The point is not about trying to decide does the Bible actually know what strong metals are. The point is not trying to decide did God really know that one day there would be steel? That's not the point. The point is a description for the time and the day and their understanding that they would get it. The 
point is that even the kingdom of Rome, with all of its iron, also had feet of clay. And the whole statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, was smashed to smithereens. That's the point. We have to come to a place to understand, as one writer says, there is not a a superfluous word. That's a big word, but there's nothing exaggerated or added that's not necessary. I want you to think about that for a minute. There's a lot of history that goes into Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Historians have written pages and pages and pages. But the point of this prophecy is not to give us a timeline of every nation and every leader and every little detailed piece of government and the senate in Rome and the the Roman warrior and the way they did war and this and that and the other. The point is to say whatever they did, all of they did, they did it by the very power of God giving them those things at the time and God's the one that took it away. There's no extra words added here. The writer says it's a masterpiece of pithy word painting. There is no hesitancy or fumbling. Another writer, a Puritan, says, So full was it that Nebuchadnezzar had no question to ask and so plain that he had no objection to make. It's interesting, when we get to the response of Nebuchadnezzar, we won't get there this week, but you'll see in verse 46, he fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. He had wanted to know his dream and the interpretation, and Daniel, by God's grace and power through him, gave him both. Another pastor says, the apparition was massive, marvelous, and maddening. We have to think about the power of God in this. How God can take six or seven centuries of history that hasn't even happened yet and condense it into a paragraph. You ought to go, whoa! One of the greatest things for anybody to be able to do as a historian, if you're really, really good, you can take things, make it readable or make it understandable to people and you can condense it in a way that they can grab hold of it and they listen to it in just an hour and go, wow! God's not even looking back at this history. He's saying, I'm telling you the future that will be history and I can condense it all into a paragraph. 
We have Nebuchadnezzar learning what will come to pass of his own kingdom. In just a few sentences, his 70 years is known to him. We have another six centuries of history unfolded. Kingdom after kingdom, rising, reigning, ruling, and falling. We have to be careful that we don't get too involved in so many details that we miss the point. We miss the point by assigning significance to the incidental and innocent anatomy of the imagery, as one writer says. Arms, belly, chest, thighs, feet, toes. We can get the idea... If God owns the whole of the picture, then he owns the details of it too. We miss the point arguing the identity of the empires. Now, I think the identity of the empires are important, but I think we miss something if we spend so much time arguing just that simple identity, uh, trying to just figure out every single instance of those empires in themselves. As one writer says, what kingdoms did that statue represent? The truth is, there is no kingdom it does not represent. Every system, every power structure, all of these that man builds, they are all the same. The writer says, maybe like this. Now, he didn't say that, but I'm giving you a condensed version. Maybe like this, the gold of the enlightenment. The silver of Western civilization, the iron curtain, the clay of the Berlin Wall, you see. In one sense, it has its place in history, and it's specific to that history, and we need to note it, rightly so. And we'll see that in a couple weeks when I preach on the divine kingdom. Because there's history there that's important and the unfolding of the divine kingdom. And yet at the same time, it ought to speak to us on a greater and broader sense. Every human kingdom is under the authority of God. It's also important to note that in the midst of this prophecy, Israel is completely ignored. Did you notice that? For all of the talk of Israel, and especially in today's eschatological arguments and fights, it's interesting here to use Daniel as case in point. Israel is completely ignored. What God had already promised to happen to Israel because of its sin had happened. 722 the northern kingdom, 605, the southern kingdom, Israel was gone. The theocracy is gone. God is saying you failed. Not all of you 
knew me. Not all of you worshipped me. And in fact, most, many, and most of you worshipped the idols, the Asherah, Baal. You still had the high places. And so therefore, while you went to the high places, I took you down. As one writer says, it is clear that God passed by the Jews to work out ancient history and called for a fifth monarchy, which was by no means Israel. The kingdom he speaks of is a kingdom without fail. Too many people are looking to reinstitute Israel and the sacrificial system and trying to find something to do with Israel in a nation-state sense when they've forgotten the point of the nation of Israel was to be that which displayed the glory of God to the nations and that God would rule and reign. And yet Israel never wanted God to rule and reign. They always wanted something else. They had to have judges. They had to have kings. They had to have this and they had to have that. And while all those things they had to have, they never truly turned to God as a nation. And so God destroyed them. Well, we have to note that the image that's given of this great statue that is extraordinary in splendor, and according to the scripture, its appearance was awesome. You can imagine why Nebuchadnezzar is so bumfuzzled by the whole thing. He sees this just awesome figure of this statue. We need to note that it's, as one writer says, it's one image, not four. You have the four kingdoms explained, but it's one single image. And the one single image is a statue, and it's that of a man. Head, arms, midsection, thighs, and feet. This is God's word reminding us that all of our governments are the enterprise of man. We're always trying to think our way through our problems and form our own authority and our own governments for our own purpose and ultimately for our own glory. If you've never read Utopia, go read it and find out what they're trying to do. They're trying to say we can form a nation and a government that's utopian and man can do it for man's glory to say, look at what we've done. And in a sense, really, utopia is a place that ultimately, especially in a modern sense, is to be without God. John Lennon wrote a song about it. If you don't know who John Lennon is, young people... Ask your mom and dad. Mom and dad, read that song to them. What if there's no heaven? 
Read the song to them. Read the lyrics. Here's worldview worked out from a humanistic, utopian way. John Lennon's wrong. Along with all the great thinkers, Descartes, they're wrong. All human enterprise goes the same way. It goes in evolution, yes. Upward, no. As one writer says, it's sequential in its decline in value and purity. Watch what man does. Every time we get power and we get authority, nothing ever goes in an upward way and stands that way and stays that way. The great American experience Experiment. What's happening? Is it getting better? Plastic was a great invention. Until we found out it gets all over the ocean and kills everything. This was that. Until this. This was that. Until this. We're always finding out stuff later and then going, what do we do next? We're always adjusting on the fly, moving in the moment, saying if we could do this or do that, the nation needs to move this way to that way. We can solve that problem. Now that we see it, we'll do this and that the other. This is one writer noted. Speaking of nations and governments and man-made ideologies, its splendor dissipates, but its hardness increases. I thought that was a really... I mean, I, think about that for a minute. To have something that you grow and move it along... And yet, the further you move it along and the further it evolves and grows, its splendor dissipates. And in that dissipation, its hardness increases. And we're Americans, so I can speak about America. You all know I love our country and our nation. But look, the splendor of this great experiment is dissipating and what's happening in the midst of it? The conscience and soul of a nation is increasing in hardness. There were so many things years ago in our nation that we didn't even stop for one moment to question. And now in the last 10 years, we don't even know if there's just two genders. There's like 38 or something, 42, 65, 78, 99, 152. I don't know. How many will they come up with? It's increasing hardness of heart by the creatures who were made in the image of God, male and female. He made them. When a nation will not bow to God, God will bring them and place them on their face.
They will continue to be stiff-necked. And they will only harden more. One writer says it's a steady deterioration. Another one says it's because these things are top-heavy. One writer says it's tottering and rickety are the governments of man. And one writer says these governments and ideologies, they go from magnificence to muscle. The great experiment in Rome was going to be about the Senate. The Senate who was put together by the people and for the people. And when you read the history of Rome, what happened? Ultimately, Caesar takes over. You went from magnificence, magnificence to muscle. Pure muscle. Caesar Augustus rules and reigns. John Calvin said, the world grows worse as it becomes older. Spurgeon said, left to man, the world is more likely to sink into a pandemonium than to rise into a millennium. Well, you say, where in the world is the encouragement and all that? Thanks a lot. What a great way to start the new year, Brandon. Well, I want to leave you with three observations. Number one, God owns history. You can put an exclamation point behind that if you want to. God owns history. Daniel's proving to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, look, I'll tell you your dream, not because I'm great, but because the God of heaven and earth is great. The one true living God. He, we, we prayed to him and we prayed for compassion and requested that he would reveal this mystery and he did so. And now I can tell you not only the interpretation, but I'll tell you the dream. And the dream is the one true living God owns history. Hey, you know what? We as believers have reason to not only be thankful, but to be joyful. That in the midst of all the world chaos that we live in in this present day and age, who's going to shoot the next ballistic missile? Who's going to threaten nuclear war? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? Who's going to blow up the oil pipelines? Who's going to... Are we going to have to... You know, mine for batteries so we can have a car that'll travel 20 miles and then we have to rest at this grocery store for eight hours before we can go home. I don't know. But you know what? God owns history. And His people have gotten through all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of ages and all kinds of troubles and tribulations. But he owns history in particular ways. Number two, God perfectly knows the future because he perfectly planned and controls the future. God perfectly knows the future 
because he perfectly planned and controls the future. And if you like symmetry, you can throw the word perfectly in front of controls. Some of your minds work that way, I know. Think about it. So many people are trying so hard to give man so much free will power that when they do that, they're just giving heightened sense of security to what we can do as mankind. We are free agents. We do the things we want to do. The problem is we have a sin nature. So by nature, what we want to do in our free agency is sin. So if I have a sinful nature and I have a sinful will and a sinful mind, then ultimately all of the schemes I come up with will be tainted and darkened by sin. I'm in need of God in His perfection to own history. Not only to know the future, because there's a lot of people who says He knows the future. No, no. He doesn't just know it. He knows it because He perfectly planned it and perfectly controls it. And the interpretation of this dream is telling you that. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, You're going to have a kingdom, but only God gave you that power. And oh, by the way, God will end your reign. After you, there will arise another. See? Thirdly, God revealed, according to one writer, how fragile human power is truly is in totality. God revealed how fragile human power truly is in totality. Where is Rome today? In its heyday, it was considered the power of the world, the known world. If you read about Rome, it is amazing the kind of strength and power that was there as a nation. And where is it today? When you think of Rome today, what do you think of? Maybe you think of Italy. Some of you might think of the Vatican. But you don't think of this nation of great, great power. Human power is truly fragile. And that goes to even our own lives. This is why we need to bow before the one true living God and do as Daniel and his friends did. Ask for compassion that we would trust in him for all of our days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're merciful and gracious. As one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and rules the nations and not a kingdom rises or falls apart from your purpose and your plan, 
we bow before you and give you thanks for your mercy to us that we even have existence, that we have breathed the breath of life this day. We have to bow before you and give thanks. Not one single movement of our bodies would have happened apart from your ingenious plan and purpose and power to create the human body. And yet our sin brought to that human body pain and death. Heavenly Father, we have done nothing that helps you or even helps ourselves. But we are in need of you for all things. Grant us mercy this day to bow before you as we come to the table. That we give glory and honor to you through your son, the Lord Jesus. That he lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.